We're going to be reading a portion of Scripture, Revelation 7, that I think exemplifies every one of those songs we just finished singing. Uh, here are a group of believers that left on a moment's notice out of Jerusalem, leaving behind all of their stuff in their homes, all of their fields, and yet they went and God preserved them, protected them, provided for them richly, and they illustrate the principles of grace we've been thinking about as well. Page 15, uh, Revelation 7, 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow upon the earth, not on the sea, not on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the sun's rising, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it had been granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and as we seek to understand it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken it to our hearts, mix it with faith, and enable us to live it out. Do anoint me and enable me to faithfully preach your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've come to a passage of Scripture that I would love to immediately dive into the rich, beautiful applications and not have to deal with controversies, but it has been so abused over the years that we've got to go through it systematically. Uh, especially it's been abused by the cults who love to see this passage as being applied uh, to them, and they do so because they yank it out of its historical context. They totally ignore the contextual clues that John gives that this is first century Jewish Christians, and they ignore some of the principles that John laid out in chapter uh, 1. And let me just <laughs> give you some examples of cults who have said, hey, we're the 144,000. The Donatists of the 4th century claimed that they and they alone were the 144,000 who had remained steadfast to God and their asceticism while the rest of the church uh, was uh, miserably compromised. Others who made this claim were the spiritual Franciscans of the 13th century, the Melchiorites of the 16th century, believe it or not, uh, Roger Williams and his separatists in America. Uh, held that they were the 144,000. The South Cotians in the 19th century, how many have heard of the South Cotians? South Cotians were the followers of Joanna Southcott in England. Uh, she was a self-proclaimed prophetess. She actually thought she was the woman in uh, Revelation chapter 12. 
And you would be amazed at the hundreds of thousands of Brits who followed this woman and poured massive amounts of money distributing her so-called prophetic writings. Anyway, they claimed that they were the 144,000. Uh, moving into the 19th and 20th centuries, you have the Seventh-day Adventists, the Russellites, Jehovah's Witnesses, at least they claim that a subset of the Jehovah's Witnesses were the 144,000, the Layman's Home Missionary Movement, Johnsonism, the new Latter House of Israel sect, Household of Faith Adventists, Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, Children of God sect, the UFO sect of Solara Antara Amaara. <laughs> I don't know if I pronounced that right, but yeah, yeah, we're the 144,000. Nobody else really meets that claim. The Branch Davidians, the Unification Church, you've probably heard of them as being called the Moonites or Muniites. Uh, they were the followers of that um, really charismatic uh, figure from uh, Korea, uh, Sung Myung Moon. Uh, the Christian Skopci sect in Russia and some New Age cults. And you might wonder, how could so many diverse groups claim that they are this 144,000 remnant who is staying faithful to God in, uh, in, the, in the last days? Well, it's for the reasons I started with, is they yank it out of its historical context. They ignore contextual clues right within this passage in chapter 14 as well, which mentions the 144,000 again and they ignore some of the interpretive principles that John laid out in chapter 1. And by the way, it's not just cults, not just cults who ignore this. Uh, there are good Orthodox people. In fact, let me pick on the Orthodox people. Some of these are Reformed. Some of these are my friends, okay? So I can understand where there is confusion on, on this particular uh, subject. But they claim that the group in verses 1 through 8 is identical to the group in verses 9 through 17. They believe that each of these two visions represents the whole church and that uh, verses 1 through 8 is not talking about uh, Jewish Christians. Now, typically, these interpreters come from the idealist camp or the recapitulationist camp though I've run across even some of my um, uh, um, partial preterist buddies, and uh, they, they hold to this as well. Typically, these interpreters uh, hold to replacement theology that says that there is no future for ethnic Israel or ethnic Jews. And I think this is a fantastic passage for overturning that viewpoint, and I'll get to that in a little bit. They say that these 144,000 are described as the 12 tribes of Israel because the kingdom was taken away from ethnic Israel, was given to the church, which has become the true Israel. For example, Richard Baucom says, 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, contrast with the innumerable multitude from all nations, chapter 7, verse 9, but... The two images depict the same reality. And then he goes on to try to prove that the 144,000 really weren't Jews and that the Gentiles being described in the next section, they are the 12 tribes. Um, they, they'll point to the book of James, for example, and they'll say, here's a book that's written to the whole church and it's addressed to whom? It's addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. 
Well, I'm sorry, uh, James was an apostle to the circumcision, and I think that they are taking that one out of context as well. But I do agree that we are unnatural branches who have been grafted into Israel just like the Gentiles in the book of Esther were grafted into Israel way back then, but that does not make them one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those are two quite separate issues, quite different statement, and I believe this passage is a strong proof text against replacement theology. I'll just lift you for you five of the most obvious interpretive clues as to who these people are, and I'll give you three or four more clues as we go through the sermon uh, verse by verse. First, <clears throat> to believe any of the interpretations that I've just described to you, whether they are orthodox or whether they are cultic, you have to ignore the time sequences. Verse 1 says, after this. So chapter 7 has to come after chapter 6. And verse 9 says, after these things, and that means that verses 9 through 17 have to occur after the events, the historical events of verses 1 through 8, and yet numerous commentaries that I own completely ignore those phrases. They don't even mention those phrases. There's a couple that do mention it, and they say, oh, by the way, that phrase doesn't mean that this is a historical sequence. It just means, okay, now we're on to another vision. This is the next vision. Okay, so just for the sake of the argument, uh, let's assume that, that uh, there are no time sequences that we've already looked at in a previous sermon from chapters 4 through chapter 11. If you ignored all of those time sequences, then yes, verse 1, since it's in the singular, could possibly be taken to mean not a historical sequence, but here is the next vision. But you can't do that with verse 9. Verse 9 has the plural, referring to the detailed events of verses 1 through 8. So verse 9 doesn't say, after this vision, or after this, or next. You would expect that would be the case if he's just saying, this is the next vision. But after these things, plural, clearly refers to the specific historical events that he has just finished talking about. There's something that occurs after those events, not after the vision but after those events. That's the first interpretive clue that he's talking about something in the first century and that verses 9 through 17 is a different subgroup of the church than the group in verses 1 through 8. Now second, verse 9 describes a body of Christians. Take a look there. It says, from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, while our section describes only Christians from the 12 tribes of Israel. And especially since nations are distinguished clearly from tribes, the nation of the first section that is made up of 12 tribes is different from the nations, plural, described in the second section. Both sections are dealing with people being saved out of nationally identified groupings of people, and it is clear that the national entity being described in verses 1 through 8 is not Gentiles. When Jews read about Israel and the nations, they're immediately thinking is Jews and Gentiles. In fact, the word that's translated over and over again in the King James uh, as Gentile, that's nation. Gentiles is nations. It's, it's, it's exactly the same word. Uh, one of the reasons for including this section is to show that 
Even though God had destroyed apostate Israel, he had not thrown off the remnant of Israel. As Chilton words it, Jerusalem is sacked and burned, its inhabitants killed and scattered, but Israel, all her people and all of her tribes, is sealed and saved. And actually, there is one tribe, Dan, that is rejected. He's the Judas of uh, the tribes, and we'll look at that in a bit. But the point is that both sections of chapter 7 describe the whole church, a church which has always been composed of Jew and Gentile. And even within that order, he starts with the Jews. It's just following the same principle that the Apostle Paul always used, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's what he is doing here. To turn verses 1 through 8 into Gentile believers does violence to the text. It's not reading it through Jewish eyes, which is the audience of this book. And it's certainly not reading it uh, through the lens of the, the hermeneutical lens that John laid down in chapter 1. Third, <clears throat> the second section of chapter 7 shows martyrs who are killed during the Great Tribulation, and this section shows Christians who are preserved from being killed during both the Great Tribulation and the Great Wrath that is about to come. There are different groups of people. The second group is 100% made up of martyrs. The first group is 100% made up of people who are not martyrs, okay? They're preserved from being martyrs. To make them the same group, I think, is, is totally missing that clue. Fourth, the second section takes place in heaven, while this section takes place on earth. These saints continue to have work to do on earth. In fact, we're going to be seeing that the whole way it's being described is God is mustering a massive army of 144 divisions. A thousand is one division in Israeli uh, terminology. So 144 divisions, it's a spiritual army with spiritual weapons. Fifth, the second section involves unnumbered and uncountable myriads of Christians, and this one involves an exact number from each tribe that is counted. Though both sections describe the church, they're different subgroups of people within the church. One that can be numbered, the other that cannot be numbered. And there are a number of other uh, clues in both this chapter and in chapter 14 that show that these 144,000 ethnic Jews um, were ethnic Jews in the first century. So let's deal with the eschatology of Israel first. There are some who agree that this is talking about ethnic Jews, but they insist that it's a prophecy concerning our future. So let me add two more points as to why this was first century Jews. First, historians, geneticists, and Israeli experts in several fields have all concluded that Jews can no longer be divided up into tribal divisions. It's obvious that it's impossible to do that. And uh, that should be an interpretive clue that it's not uh, in our future. They were so intermarried, so intermixed after the exile, any Jewish rabbi will say, you can't, they aren't divided up into tribal groups. All of the tribes have been evaporated. All genealogies have been evaporated. So by itself, this proves that this passage cannot be fulfilled any time after the first century. It automatically rules out the fourth century Donatists and the Melchiorites and Roger Williams' community. It, it rules out all of these other interpretations. Second, 
To put these 144,000 into some future time periods violates the time sequences in this book that we went through so carefully that show that chapters 4 through 11 are a historical sequence. One occurs right after the other. So the dispensational interpretation does not make sense. By the way, historic premills will agree with my interpretation here, but the dispensationalists do not. Uh, <clears throat> now, dispensationalists claim to interpret Revelation literally, but if you really take this literally, then you have to say it's in the first century because it's the only time that there are going to be any tribal divisions. Any descendants of Israel who are saved in the future, and they will be saved, will not be able to tell you what tribe they come from. So that's the key point. We're anchored in the first century. Now let me try to tie this passage together with Romans 11 and show how this chapter confirms the post-millennial interpretation of Romans 11. Some of you have struggled with that, uh, that whole chapter. Well, here is a, an interpretation that when you link it with Romans 11, it's like, okay, John Murray's interpretation is absolutely correct. And I'm going to build one argument upon another. The first argument is obviously the one that we've been making, that this is dealing with the remnant being saved from national Jews in the first century. I want you to notice the phrases out of and sons of in verse 4. Out of and sons of. Why say out of every tribe of the sons of Israel if it wasn't the literal descendants of Israel that Jesus is referring to. So this is yet another argument. It has to be ethnic. Certainly the church is the spiritual Israel, but are people being saved out of the church? No, that doesn't make any sense in context. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel, and then comes the listing of those who are saved out of every tribe. If this had nothing to do with ethnic or national Israel, why say, out of every tribe? The Greek out of indicates that the bulk of the people in each tribe were left unsaved in the first century. Judah and Gad are not saved. Only those sealed out of Judah and Gad are saved. And just for the sake of argument, assume that John wanted to say that um, this is referring to ethnic Jewish Christians, can you figure out any better way to try to indicate that there is a remnant of Jews that are being saved? I cannot think of any better way. He just hammers it every angle that he can to show this is ethnic Jews. And yet so many interpreters take these verses, verses 1 through 8 is referring to Gentile Christians. Uh, let me try to illustrate this. Just imagine that all up and down this wall we've got uh, 12 huge containers of flour, and I'm going to make a cake. Each of those jars has the uh, name of one of the tribes of Israel on it, and I'm going to take a scoop of a quarter cup of flour, and I'm going to put it into a mixing bowl over here, and this mixing bowl represents the church. The church, that mixing bowl used to be over here amongst those 12 tribes, amongst those 12 jars, but God chose to reject Israel and reconstitute a new Israel. Just like he did in the Babylonian exile, he reconstituted a new, a new Israel from the remnant, and he called that the church. So on this uh, podium here, we've got the church, 
and I'm going to take a quarter cup of flour from uh, Judah and put it in the bowl, and from Reuben and put it in the bowl. There's a whole bunch more flour that's left over here, and in this bowl is the church. That's not the church over there, those 12 jars. This is the church over here. Now, in the second half of the chapter, we see that there are more people in the church. It talks there about all of these tribes and nations. And so we got a hundred jars over here that we've got to take flour out of. We're going to take two or three cups from each of those jars because this is a monster cake that we are making. So we take a cup out of that nation, we take another cup out of that nation, and when we're taking cups of flour out of that nation, we don't call that the church either. It's only what comes out of those national entities comes into this mixing bowl that can be constituted the new Israel or the new church. But we don't call the 12 jars over here the church. Is it making sense? It's only what comes out, and it's not the church until it gets added to the bowl, till they are saved. What's left behind? It's apostate Israel. It's apostate Judah, apostate Reuben, apostate Gad. Judah is not the church. Gad is not the church. Only what comes out is the church. Well, that's exactly what the text says here. Literally, verse 5 says, out of, look in the Greek, it's very literally out of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, out of the tribe of Reuben, etc. It's clearly not Judah that's being saved. Only 12,000 out of that entire tribe were saved. So the tribe of Judah cannot logically be a reference to the church as replacement theology insists. Only those saved out of the church who have joined the church. And he continues to go to such lengths to list how many people come out of every tribe that neither the tribes nor the whole groupings of jars against that wall could possibly represent the New Testament church. So what chapter 7 is referring to is a constitution of a new church that started with Jews and Gentiles have been grafted in, and Jew and Gentile are equally a part of the church. Okay, that's what it's talking about. So we're building a case for postmillennialism, the postmillennialist idea that until the second coming of Christ, there will always be a church composed of both Jew and Greek, or Gentile, and eventually the whole nation of Israel will be saved. The first part of our argument is that this is dealing with ethnic Israel, national Israel. Now, I'm having to be so pedantically precise because this is ignored so frequently. And if I haven't clarified, I'll repeat myself. Are we pretty clear that we're talking about national, ethnic Israel and people being saved out of it? No confusion there. Okay. Second part of my argument is that if, if, if what we have just said is correct, then this 144,000 represents what Paul calls the remnant of Israel that would survive the Holocaust of AD 66 through 74. As Romans 9:27 words it with respect to the Jews who were alive while Paul was preaching, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So Romans 9.27 is pointing to all of these jars over here, apostate Israel, and it's saying, 
Yeah, there's a lot of Israelis. There's, they're like the sand of the sea, but it's only the remnant that will be saved. Only that which has come into this mixing bowl that will be saved. So it's the remnant. Third part of my argument is that Revelation 14 and verse 4 refers to this remnant, this 144,000, one more time, and calls them, let me quote it, a first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Well, if the first century Jewish Christians, those people who were saved, is a kind of a first fruits harvest, then it implies that there is going to be a much larger harvest of Jews in the future. A first fruits is by definition only a tiny portion, the first portion of the full harvest. If there is not a massive harvest of Jews at some point in history, then you can hardly call this, uh, these first century Jews a first fruits. It doesn't make any sense. The very term first fruits refers to a harvest that's usually just uh, two, three uh, clumps of grain that are pulled together. It's a ceremonial uh, thing. It's a, it's a remnant. It's not the rest of the field. So it implies that there is going to be a massive the full harvest in the future at a later time. And that's exactly what Paul argues in Romans chapter 11. He argues that Israel was not replaced or cast away, okay? And he gives two arguments for why he is saying this. He says, first of all, hey, I'm a Jew, and if God cast away his people whom he foreknew, I wouldn't have been able to be saved. But I am saved, therefore God has not cast away his people. And he says, furthermore, there is lots of other Jews who are being saved, the remnant. And so if there is an ongoing remnant being saved, then obviously God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, like replacement theology says. And he goes on to say that there is going to be an ongoing ingathering of a remnant of Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So right now, we still in many nations of the Gentiles, we're remnant. We're just a tiny minority in those Gentile nations. There is coming a time when the fullness, in other words, the majority of people in all of these Gentile nations will be saved. And he says, when that happens, at some point, God's going to save all of Israel, and they too are going to transition from remnant theology to fullness theology. There's going to be the fullness of Israel, and all Israel will be saved, every man, uh, woman, and child. And so I believe that this future national conversion of Israel is implied in the very term first fruits harvest. Does that make sense? First century Jews, they're the remnant, they are first fruits. Where is the rest of the field going to be harvested? It's going to be a massive harvest in the future. And my reading of the Old Testament prophets is that Israel's future conversion will happen in one day. It's going to be overnight, just like that. Uh, Romans 11 argues as a result of that conversion, God will pour out such blessing upon the world that it will be like life from the dead. All of the blessings promised in the Old Testament are going to be strewn across the earth, and all of the blessings promised in, in Revelation chapters 20 through 22 are going to come to pass. There's going to be a glorious age, a long period of time, 
of peace, gospel peace, and prosperity. This is the post-millennial argument, and I think it's all implied in calling the 144,000 a first fruits. But at least, even if you don't buy my argument on that, and I know there's some of my friends are going to shake their heads and say, no, Phil, you're wrong. But even if you don't buy my argument on that, at least believe that Jew and Gentile continue, according to this chapter, to be equal members of the church. So that's your eschatology lesson this morning. And if you want more on that, I'm not going to give it this morning. Well, maybe I'll give a few hints uh, later this morning. But I would encourage you to read John Murray's commentary on Romans chapter 11 and read uh, David Chilton's book, Paradise Restored. It'll give you a lot more information. Now, with the eschatology lesson behind us, let's dig into the text a bit more and let's pull out four incredibly comforting lessons that we can apply in any age. Doesn't matter when you live, who you are, whether Jew or Gentile, these are lessons that we can take home with us. <clears throat> First lesson is that God is sovereign during tough times. Now, we already saw that Jesus is sovereign in every section in chapter 6 because he's the one who opens up those uh, seals. But notice his absolute sovereignty over creation in verse 1. And after this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow upon the earth, not on the sea, not on any tree. God controls the wind, the sea, the earth, and the trees. Clark's commentary points out in terms of timing that this was a perfect time for God to make a pause in his judgments. The winds were going to bring devastation in the next chapters, but while the Jewish Christians fled from Jerusalem in A.D. 66, which, by the way, was in obedience to Christ's command, as soon as you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, take off. Don't even come down into your houses. Don't go back to get your stuff. Run. Run for the hills, okay? And they did. So in obedience to that, God made the weather conditions absolutely perfect. In fact, I think they probably were praying in obedience to Christ's command. In Matthew 24, he said, pray that it won't be in the winter. Pray that it'll be good weather conditions. And they must have prayed because this was a perfect weather condition for them to flee under. There was a calmness from all four points of the compass. God is sovereign over creation. A second, God is sovereign over the judgments that fall upon a nation. Uh, verses 2 through 3. And I saw another angel ascending from the sun's rising, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it had been granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. Neither angels of judgment nor demons of affliction could touch God's people without his permission. Though the armies of Flores brought incredible devastation in April, of AD 66, uh, though uh, the zealots brought even more devastation in the months that followed, though Cestius Gallus uh, brought unbelievable numbers of death and death, uh, de desolation in the fall of uh, AD 66, uh, God was sovereign over who would bring the uh, dev devastations, how they would bring them, when they would bring them. And that's really a tough thing for some people to be convinced of, especially since those devastations are being brought through uh, men uh, with free human agency. 
Uh, and they, they struggle with that. How can God be sovereign and men be free? And I'm not going to delve into that today. Just believe both sides. The Scripture affirms both sides. So even though the judgments are mediated through evil men, those judgments are precisely predicted and controlled by God. They could not do their harm until God's protection of these saints was in place. Now the word till indicates that God's timing is perfect during tough times. Uh, as I mentioned, the Roman soldiers under Cestius would decimate the countryside, scorching the earth, sea, trees, destroying crops. But before his armies could do that, God sealed and protected his people. Now, of course, his people were, as uh, the uh, Christian historian Eusebius points out, obedient to Christ's command. And as soon as they saw the city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they, they escaped, they ran. And um, there were three times, actually, that they could have left. They could have left after Florus attacked Jerusalem in April. They could have left after the angelic armies surrounded Jerusalem in May, and they could have left after Cestius came against the city and actually almost conquered it. It was pure idiocy on his part to leave. It was like a day or two from absolutely conquering the city, but for some strange reason that nobody has figured out, he fled. And then the Jews took heart, and they tore after them, and in a ravine they just decimated his uh, Roman army. Nobody understands how all of that happened. I think, though, that God orchestrated it to allow maybe a few stragglers from amongst the Christian Jews to say, okay, we better leave now, and they left. Eusebius says there weren't any Christians who died during the war in Jerusalem. Uh, I take issue with him. I think there were two who died. It was two prophets uh, who deliberately stayed behind in Israel. I mean, in, 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 in Jerusalem, and uh, they, they died. <clears throat> and by the way, uh, Cestius, is, uh, he fled in November 25, if you're trying to date some of those things, but that doesn't occur here anyway. That's a little bit later. The last evidence of God's sovereignty can be seen in the exact number of people who were saved from each of these tribes and the fact that one of those tribes was excluded, Dan. God is sovereign in salvation, and if these numbers are literal, then it indicates that the number saved and the number damned was not left to chance at all. Only if the five points of Calvinism are true could there be exactly 12,000 saved from 12 tribes, not one more or one less. Now, I'm not dogmatic that these 144,000 have to be a literal number. They could be entirely symbolic, but you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I, I think all the way through the book of Revelation, yes, they are symbols, and we're going to look at the symbology of that number, but the symbols also literally occur in history. That's my viewpoint. So the way I understand it is that God saved exactly that number of Jews from exactly those tribes and not one more or one less could be saved than those whom God had predestined. As the Westminster Confession of Faith words it, these angels and men thus predestinated and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Could there be any better illustration of the unconditional election of God than this 
particular passage. I don't think so. God is sovereign in salvation with the elect of every generation being a precise number that was in God's mind long before it ever happened. Now, when you're going through tough times, you can be grateful that God is sovereign. He is not taken by surprise. He is not frustrated by man's free will. He ordains the end. He ordains the beginning. He ordains everything that happens in between. Nothing happens by chance. But there's another comforting doctrine here. God's mercy during tough times, I think, is wonderfully exemplified by these verses. Earlier in chapter 6, we saw that God allowed a whole host of Jewish Christians to be killed, to be martyrs, and to get to heaven before the other guys were able to get to heaven. And that's a mercy. That's a wonderful thing. They're ushered into glory, into incredible enjoyment. But here we've got another manifestation of mercy. God is sparing some of these Jewish Christians from suffering along with all of the other Jews. Either way you go, it's a mercy. We are not getting what we deserve. We deserve hell. So anything that God gives to us really is a mercy, but God pours out his generosity and his kindness in our lives so wonderfully. So the attribute of mercy is an incredibly comforting doctrine. Now there is yet another comforting doctrine, and that is that he uses angels on our behalf during tough times. Now some people really get freaked out by the book of Revelation because it talks about demons so much, and there's so many scary demons in this book. And I say, you know, just look at chapter 12. Yeah, there's a lot of demons, but there's twice as many good angels as there are bad angels, according to Revelation chapter 12. There's more who are with us than those who are with the world. And here's the cool thing. Hebrews 1 verse 14 calls those angels ministering spirits who are sent by God to minister, that means serve, those who are heirs of salvation. That is so cool that God sends these incredibly powerful beings to serve us, to serve our needs. Now, in this case, some of the angels put a mark on the foreheads of these 144,000. In verse 3, they say, Do not harm the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until they have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. What does that refer to? Remember, we, we saw there's so many angles. You can look at the book of Revelation to help us to understand it. One of them is look at the order in which Ezekiel occurs because this is patterned after Ezekiel. We look at Ezekiel 9 and say, wow, same thing's happening there. There are six angels who have battle axes in their hands. They're ready to go out and waste Jerusalem. But before they can do that, God sends somebody to put a mark on people's heads. He says, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all of the abominations that are done within it. So here are a remnant of people in Jerusalem, back in the time of Babylon, who are sick over all of the sins in their society. It makes them weep. It makes them groan. They are very, very troubled by it. And because they are troubled and they are resistant to the sins of that society, God says, I love these people. I'm going to put a mark on their heads, and I'm going to protect them. And that mark, by the way, is visible to angels and demons, very obviously. I think it's invisible to men. So after they have been marked, God says, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark 
and begin at my sanctuary. <clears throat> and God does the same thing here. Prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, God marked for protection a remnant of believing Jews, and angels were somehow involved in putting that mark there. Now, there's all kinds of other angelology. It's the doctrine of angels going on in this passage. Verse 1 seems to indicate that certain angels have power to control the wind. By the way, the reference to the four corners of the earth is not flat earth theology as some insane liberals try to make it out to be. Uh, it's talking about the four corners of the compass or the four corners of the map. They understood that the earth was round. Uh, in the Bible, it talks about the earth spinning as a globe. And uh, it talks about east and west and north and south and that as far as the east is from the west, so far our transgressions removed from us. Well, that means east never meets west. It's a round globe. But they understood you could get to the North Pole. There is a north and you land there and you go away from it, you're going away from north. They understood that there was a south. They knew the magnetic poles. They knew east and west. They weren't dummies. And so there's nothing unscientific about this statement. But in any case, we should rejoice at the work of angels that's mentioned in verses 1 through 8. They're involved in the processes of the physical world. They're involved in judgments. It says they travel, they speak, they have authority, they operate under authority. In fact, you can see that in verse 2. To whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And that verse also talks about their judgments. Uh, verse 3 indicates they work together, they strategize together. They're not robots. You know, they are persons in, in some sense. Verses 4 through 8 indicates they seal and protect God's people. So again, there is this doctrine of angelology going on here. It's worth studying passages like this, and we may pull together a lot of the disparate passages in, in Revelation um, in one sermon maybe dealing with angelology. The, the main point I want you to get this morning is take comfort when you're going through tough times. God's sending his angels. Every one of your kids has an angel assigned uh, to him. The doctrine of angels is an incredible comfort when you have gone through tough times. The last comforting thing that the Jews would have instantly gotten was the symbols. <clears throat> and the things mentioned in Revelation can be literally found in history, but those same literal events are also often symbols. And there are three symbols that showcase God's covenant faithfulness or mercy, which is expressed in the Hebrew word chesed. Now, in one sense, you know, it's really unfortunate I have to even dig these things out because it loses its punch when you have to, it's just like explaining a joke. You know, if you have to explain it, nobody laughs. And you have to explain a symbol, it's like, okay, it's taking the punch out of it, I understand it now, but if you were a first century Jew, you would have been so familiar with these, sense, uh, these symbols, it would have immediately impacted you emotionally. It would give you real comfort. But let's explain it. First symbol is wind, and specifically the four winds. I have numerous references that indicate that wind is a symbol of God's judgments, especially God's judgments upon nations. And I'm not going to go through them all, but let me just give you one example. Jeremiah 49, verse 36, God says, Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. 
And then the next verse indicates that those four winds were the universal power of Babylon. And there are several other passages that identify the winds of judgment with various nations. Why? Because God is using those nations to blow upon Israel, to scatter them as chaff. So in context here, the number four is the symbol for universality. And that should make sense because we talk about the four ends of earth, four ends of heaven, four corners of the map, four parts of the compass. So it's universality. The word wind is a reference to, it's a symbol of uh, judgment. And so four winds would be the universality of power of Rome being used to bring destruction upon Israel. Now we can understand God's pausing of judgment being a symbol of mercy, but what about the judgment itself? Why would that be an example of God's covenant faithfulness? Why would it bring comfort to the Jews? I think Rush Dooney explains it well <clears throat> when he says, judgment thus is not only the other side of the coin of salvation, but it is also an act of grace and mercy to the people of God. However devastating the fall of Jerusalem was to the faithful remnant, without that fall, no remnant would have remained. Why is that the case? It's because, as we've already seen, that those enemies had collaborated together to obliterate the church. Now, we may not like judgment, but the judgment of a nation is often God's way of preserving His people. I, I like to think of it in terms of Psalm 136. That's a, a psalm that, you remember, repeats that phrase, for His mercy endures forever, over and over again, almost every verse. Well, so he gives some really bad things that happen to his people, and without batting an eye, he gives the explanation, for his mercy endures forever. And then he'll talk about happy things, for his mercy endures forever, and his providences, for his mercy endures forever, and then judgments, for his mercy endures forever. Okay, so that Psalm 136 is saying that all of heaven and all of earth is exemplifying God's mercy, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his loyalty, his chesed to his people. It showcases that. So the four winds are a mercy by taking out the church's enemies and, in this case, holding them back for a time while the church can escape. Now, what about the seal on the foreheads? We already saw that angels did literally put something upon people to protect them. Humans couldn't see it, but angels and demons obviously could. Now, chapter 14 clarifies what was on that symbol, that seal. It was the name of the Father. They've got Jehovah written on their foreheads. That's such a cool image. You belong to Jehovah. He claims you as his own. He provides for you. He protects you. So just as the beast from the bottomless pit put his name upon unbelievers, claiming them as his property, God uses angels to put his name on these true believers. They are branded as his bond slaves, and it's called a seal. Seals in the ancient East were used for three things. They showed ownership. Second, they protected against tampering. You know, you put a, steel on a, a seal on, a, a, on a, even a document. Shows ownership, it protects from tampering, and thirdly, it was a certification or a guarantee of something. And I think it's a wonderful thing that God would be willing to put His seal on us, especially with His name. It shows He owns us, protects us as His property, 
and certifies to all demons and angels, we are the real thing. Leave my property alone. Don't you touch those people, okay? And I'm so grateful that we are signed, sealed, and delivered into the Father's loving care, just like those first century saints were. Now, the last symbol is the 144,000, and it too shows God's mercy and chesed. We've already seen that the number of Jewish believers in the first century was exactly 12,000 from 12 tribes, and as they counted up their numbers after they left Jerusalem, it probably sent shivers up and down their spine to realize, whoa, there's exactly 12,000 of us, because they're all in the same city. They're all worshiping together. There's 12,000 from each of these tribes. Surely God's promises, His ancient promises uh, to Abraham have been fulfilled. As Paul worded it in Romans 11, verse 1, I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. And then comes an extended apologetic for why there will never, ever be a time in history when there is not at least a remnant of Jews who will be saved. And secondly, why there is a coming day in history when the entire nation of Israel, living at that juncture, will be saved. Again, it showcases God's predestinating power. He's got power to save the remnant in every age. He's got power to save every man, woman, and child in that nation at some point in history. Now, this is something Amils are really skeptical of. How could that be? How could God save every man, woman, and child in one day? Because he's sovereign. <laughs> it's so easy. And it's people who claim they believe in sovereignty who are skeptical and say that just couldn't happen. No, he's sovereign. He can do it. If he's chosen to do it, he can do it. They're skeptical that the numbers could be literal in Revelation 7. How can God save such a precise number of people? Surely it cannot be literal. But if it is literal, it shows not only God's sovereignty, but it also symbolizes the fact that God has not cast off his ancient people Israel. Why even mention these various tribes of Israel here? And why would Paul mention that he's of the tribe of Benjamin in, in Romans chapter 11 if Romans 11 has nothing whatsoever to do with ethnic Israel? It makes no sense. But if you take a literal number, it showcases God's sovereignty. And if you take that literal number as also being a symbol, it showcases his perpetual mercies to Israel in a powerful way. But these 144,000 are not simply saved. They are saved to be a spiritual army taking the conquest of the Great Commission. And this is what sends chills up and down my spine. To human eyes, it may have looked like they were grasshoppers in the eyes and the sight of the giants and of the Philistines and of the Canaanites. I mean, what hope does 144,000 Christians have against the huge monster Rome? Well, with God they can do valiantly, and this chapter shows God mustering a first-century army. Why were they needed? Well, with the multiplied millions of Gentile Christians as well as Jews who had been killed in AD 62 through AD 68, which is still a bit future to this chapter, we're going to be seeing that the next chapter is still sequential after this, I mean, not the, the next section is sequential after verses 1 through 8, 
So with those multiplied millions of Christians being killed, the church of Jesus Christ was almost extinguished. And that's exactly what Jesus prophesied would happen in Matthew chapter 24. If he had not cut those days of that great tribulation short, no one, take it seriously, no one would survive. So God in his mysterious providence has willed for almost the entire church to be extinguished throughout the Roman Empire, but now he is mustering an army of incredibly dedicated Jews who are not married. I take it all literally. Chapter 14 in this passage. They're not married. They are 100% devoted day and night to advancing Christ's kingdom, and he's going to use these 144 divisions, 1,000 each in these divisions, to retake the world that seems like Satan has, has won. They're going to retake it. They're going to be scattered all everywhere, turning the world upside down once again, and now, beginning after that great apostasy, beginning this transformation of planet Earth into paradise that's going to end in chapters 20 through 21. It's a very, very significant group of people. Here's what Chilton says. The number 144,000 is obviously symbolic. Twelve the number of Israel squared, then multiplied by 1,000, 10, and its multiple, multiples symbolizing many, and he gives a bunch of scriptures. St. John pictures for us the ideal Israel, Israel as it was meant to be in all its perfection, symmetry, and completeness. The holy army of God mustered for battle according to her thousands, First Chronicles 4 through 7. The thousand was the basic military division in the camp of Israel. He gives a whole bunch of scriptures. This is the significance of Micah's famous prophecy of the nativity. Even though Bethlehem is too small to be counted among the thousands of Judah, too insignificant to be considered seriously in the nation's military strategy, yet from you one shall go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, the king who will establish God's justice and peace to the ends of the earth, Micah 5, 1 through 15. It is in terms of this biblical imagery that St. John hears the names of the tribes shouted out. He is listening to the military roll call of the Lord of hosts. In this case, each of the 12 tribes is able to field 12 full divisions, a numerically perfect army of 144,000 soldiers of the Lord. Why do we need an army? because we've been called to conquer the world in terms of the Great Commission. This time, rather than destroying all nations, we're converting all nations to Christianity. And when we get to chapter 14, we're going to be seeing this first century army is going to be equipped by God to do incredible things, to start the process of turning the world upside down. So it is describing the church militant. We continue the process of being the church militant. By the way, <clears throat> even though I disagree with replacement theology, even though I insist that the church is composed of both Jew and Gentile, I do agree that the New Testament church is the new Israel and Gentiles have been grafted in. And this morning, I'm not going to have the time to go into details on the um, 
differences between the ordering of the tribes in the book of Numbers. Uh, there's uh, the whole ordering of all of these divisions versus the changed order of the numbering that you find in the ex uh, post-exilic community that's described by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter uh, 48 versus the ordering and the numbering that we have right here uh, in Revelation. But if you start studying that through in detail, it sends shivers up your spine because it is, it is so profound in showing the movement of redemptive history. I'm only going to give you a little bit of a, a, a foretaste of that uh, this morning. It does, for example, show that the temple and city of Ezekiel 48 are not a description of the New Covenant, as so many people try to make it out to be. It was a description of a literal temple in a literal city that Ezra constructed, and people were weeping because it wasn't on the dimensions that Ezekiel said got described, but it kept getting built onto. And uh, got added on to over time up to the time of Christ when he dedicated that temple uh, to destruction. And there's wonderful lessons in the change of names that we see from Exodus to Ezekiel that I won't deal with. But let me highlight four of the many lessons that those four charts you have on the back of your outlines uh, give. First, there is a conspicuous absence of the priests who were central to the diagrams both before and after the exile. If you look at the first chart under Numbers, Levi, you'll see Levi is not listed under the east, west, north, or south divisions of the armies. Instead, Levi and his children are at the center of the diagram. They camp all around the tabernacle, okay? But in the diagram of Revelation, Levi is bumped out of the center and takes number eight spot. Okay, Levi's still mentioned in verse 7 of Revelation uh, 7, so that indicates Levites are being saved in the first century, but they no longer have any more central role than any other tribe. Okay, in fact, Revelation 21 is going to say once the temple is destroyed, there's no more need for a temple. It says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So what's the point? <clears throat> the point is... And, and you can study this in much more detail on your own, but the point is that Jesus is the only priest and Jesus is the only temple. And I don't have time to apply that principle to the ungodly Roman Catholic Mass where they have a priesthood that pretends to re-sacrifice Christ uh, every time they, 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 they have the Mass. Uh, or to apply this against Eastern Orthodoxy or James Jordan's strange ecclesiology. Suffice it to say that this perfectly supports the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Puritan view that Jesus is the only ordained ecclesiastical priest. The ordering of Judah also gives Christ priority. Take a, a look at verse 5. Notice that Judah comes first in verse 5. Now, he wasn't born first. So why does he come first? He was born fourth, actually. In Genesis 35, it lists him fourth because he was born fourth. But the very way things were changed in the Old Testament makes it clear that this listing of Judah first is very deliberate. Judah was fourth in Genesis, but then was placed first under the numbering of the kingdom. Why? Because the Davidic kings were going to be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you get to the exile, there are no longer any Davidic kings who are going to foreshadow or be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, so Judah is bumped to second place. 
But now that Jesus has ascended to his throne, chapters 4 through 5, his tribe, the tribe of Judah, is given the preeminent place once again. So it points to the fact Jesus is the preeminent beast, he's the preeminent king. I think it's appropriate in the New Testament uh, times, in our period of time, to say we have no king but Jesus, and we have no priest but Jesus. And after 70 AD, we have no prophet but Jesus. He has the preeminence in all of life. Now, the third thing that's striking about the order in Revelation is that God didn't save anyone from the tribe of Dan. Now, there's speculation on why that would be, but I believe both Hosea and Amos point out that Dan would be displaced much like Judas was displaced among the apostles. Dan was the Judas. So, commentators believe that Judas's name is not written on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem, and even though it doesn't say so specifically, I believe Matthias's name will be down there. Not the Apostle Paul, but I believe it'll be Matthias. You can talk to me later about that, but uh, likewise, Dan will be removed from that honored place, and Manasseh replaces him. The only other change is that Joseph, the father of Ephraim, is listed rather than Ephraim because of the shame that Ephraim brought through their apostasy. Now, still a remnant of Ephraimites who are, are saved, 12,000, but they don't have the name Ephraim. They're put under the, the Joseph slot. And so all of the changes in names makes perfect sense. They are read in a way that shows that the birth order and the tribal divisions will no longer hold a prominent role in the New Testament. The fourth thing that these charts clearly point to is that the church, sounding like a broken record, the church is composed of literal Jews and literal Gentiles, both of whom compose the new Israel, both of whom will inhabit the new Jerusalem. It's not just Gentile, but Jew and Gentile. And though Jewish portion of the church is mentioned first, it's because God had to establish a new Israel before there could be any Israel into which to graft the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles mentioned in the second half of the chapter. And Revelation 21 through 22 do not say that Gentiles are outside the gates of the city. On the contrary, the Gentile nations are inside, according to chapters 21 through 22. And chapter 22, verse 15 explains what is outside. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now, there's a lot more that could be said, but hopefully I've given you enough so you can really get a good feel for what this section of Revelation is all about. It shows us an eschatology of Israel that God still has a place for her within his church, not outside the church like in dispensationalism where they're two separate people, but in the church. And it shows, secondly, that neither Jew nor Gentile are second-class citizens in the kingdom but are equally inhabitants of the new Israel. It also highlights the incredible sovereignty of God, especially in salvation, and it showcases the incredibly wonderful covenant faithfulness of God to His promises. So may we take great joy in being conscripts in God's spiritual army and take great joy in following our commander, knowing that if He is for us, who can be against us? Amen. We thank You, Father, for this Your Word. We thank You for the encouragement that is in it. And even though your word has been uh, twisted and many times ignored, uh, we do not want to be guilty of the same folly. And so I pray that you would protect us uh, from mishandling your word. 
Help us, Father, to be faithful in understanding it, uh, living it out, and uh, spreading it. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. We pray that, Father, you would make us to be a part of this royal army, uh, willing to take the advancement of uh, your kingdom wherever you call us to take it. In Jesus' name, amen.